Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys. I'm Doug McCullough from the Lone Star Policy Institute. I am flying solo today as Josiah Neely isn't able to join us, but I am joined today by Carl Sabo of Net Choice. He is the uh, Vice President and General Counsel there. Carl, thank you for uh, joining us today. Doug, thanks for having me. Uh, long-time listener, first-time uh, podcaster with you. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, just to, to get us started, um, tell us a little bit about NetChoice, what its uh, institutional mission is, and just uh, and what your what your role is there. You know, NetChoice, we've been around for 20 years now, and we have one relatively simple guiding principle, promoting free expression and free enterprise on the internet. And what does that mean? That means we essentially want to minimize unnecessary regulations and just make the internet a safe space for free speech and and commerce. And uh, at NetChoice, I am vice president and general counsel. So that means I I lead our team through a lot of policy considerations, a surprisingly large number of lawsuits recently. And at the same time, uh, when I'm not doing this, I'm an adjunct professor of internet law at the George Mason Anthony Scalia Law School. Oh, fantastic. So I think there's a lot that we could cover, everything from content to moderation to antitrust that would sort of be within your remit. But let's uh, let's start with content moderation. I know on this podcast, we've had a few conversations about content moderation in general, Section 230, but I think it's sort of a baseline. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know your views on, on Section 230? What is it? What's its importance? And then we can talk a little bit about how uh, there's some competing views and, and some of the legislative efforts to maybe change Section 230. But just as a starter, what's the importance of Section 230? You know, Section 230 is basically a litigation tool to dismiss easily frivolous lawsuits that would otherwise lose. Now, Section 230, you know, dates back to 1995, and there were a couple different cases that came out. Long story short, you had two competing cases. One was Prodigy, one was CompuServe. Uh, The courts differed, and the nut was that Prodigy, which is a somewhat bygone internet service provider these days, was trying to engage in content moderation to make their service more family-friendly. So they would occasionally try to remove pornography, just really, uh, really awful stuff. Well, there was a defaming comment posted about the Wolf of Wall Street folks, uh, basically calling them charlatans. And the Wolf of Wall Street folks then sued Prodigy, not the person who actually posted the content, but the platform that hosted it. And the judge looked at it and said, well, because Prodigy engages in this attempt to make it family friendly, and they do some content moderation, they should be a liable for all content on the And so at the time, Representative Chris Cox, uh, Republican in California, and Representative Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, looked at this and thought that was an absurd outcome. In today's society, if I'm walking down the street and I see somebody kind of gasping for air, and I go down, I provide the Heimlich maneuver, and in the course of saving their life, I am able I accidentally break their ribs. We have laws in every single state, including Texas, saying that I would not be held liable for breaking that individual's ribs as I went to save their life because we want to encourage people to do the right thing, to engage in what are called Good Samaritan practices. And Section 230 is basically the Good Samaritan for the internet. It, It enshrines into law what the courts had said since the 1950s, that a platform is not liable for the content from others in the same way that a library is not liable for the content inside the books. And at the same time, and the more intriguing component, exciting component of Section 230, it went on to then say, if you engage in content moderation, we are not going to then confer all the liability for all the content in there. So we want to encourage platforms to go forth and engage in content moderation. And if you look today, you can see where 
that has been truly beneficial. A lot of us were either not on the internet back in the mid nineties or, you know, that's 25, 27 years ago. And it's, it's a long memory we need to have the amount of filth, the amount of horrible content, all perfectly legal under the first amendment, but stuff we just don't want to see was robust. And what do we have today? We have a internet where we want to go and spend time. We have an internet where we want to go and share photos, share reviews, share comments, and engage with others. And that's because Section 230 has empowered content moderation and has empowered uh, from a litigation side. Now, one of the big problems with 230 is uh, it's truly misunderstood. And it's easy to get this misunderstanding uh, and, and see it happening. We see it all the time. In fact, the New York Times a couple weeks ago had an article where they said uh, Section 230, the law that empowers content moderation. And they later did a correction. It's like, oops, it turns out it's the First Amendment that allows content moderation. So Section 230 is not a tool that actually allows content moderation. What it does is it says, when I get sued for my content moderation, rather than spending a million and a half dollars defending myself through litigation, discovery, complaints, appeals, I can do a quick motion to dismiss for $50,000. That's really all Section 230 does, but it's essential for startups, for new developers, and for podcasts like these. So you already sort of alluded to uh, maybe the wild, wild west of the 90s, but there's certainly people that are pushing a different uh, vision for the Internet. And uh, some of that's actually surprisingly happening at the state level. Uh, would you talk a little bit about some of the efforts at the state level to pass legislation uh, with a different approach to uh, content moderation? I think no most notably places like uh uh, Florida and Texas. Tell us a little bit about what some of that legislation is purported to do, and then we can talk about uh, your and Net Choices' views on uh, the merits uh, of such legislation. The the law that was uh, passed and enacted in Florida, which Net Choice uh, sued and successfully got an injunction, that means the law is not in effect today. But uh, the the underlying goal was to, quote unquote, promote free speech and, and novel goals, a notable goal. And what it said was social media platforms of a certain size must host content regardless of the underlying content. And this kind of flies in the face of what we actually want a lot of these platforms to do. Now, the reason that we basically won the lawsuit pretty quickly and it's it's being appealed by the state and it's got a couple more legal hoops to jump through but ultimately it will be fully struck down uh, is because it's a violation of the first amendment now most of us use the term first amendment interchangeably with the term free speech and that's kind of a misconception the first amendment prohibits the government from infringing on free speech so while Doug, you can pick and choose who you want to interview on your podcast. Uh, if somebody off the street said, I demand to be on your podcast, you can easily say no. If I go into a restaurant and I start screaming profanities or flipping over tables, that restaurant can ask me to leave. The First Amendment protects me from the government. It does not protect me from Doug. And that's where this disconnect is really being seen because a lot of people say, oh, these social media websites are restricting my First Amendment rights. Well, no, that's a misreading of the First Amendment is a restriction on the government. So the First Amendment prohibits the government from restricting free speech and religion. The other component of what the First Amendment does is it prohibits what's called compelled speech. And compelled speech is one of these things you see in author authoritarian governments. It's you must salute the supreme leader. You must say this country is the greatest. You must say death to America. That is what is called compelled speech. And the First Amendment 
just in the same way that it prohibits the government from blocking speech, from keeping us from saying something, the First Amendment prevents the government from forcing us to say something. And what you've seen in the law that uh, we sued and won on in Florida and the, the bills that are still moving in Texas right now as of August, end of August, is an effort by the government to engage in what's called compelled speech. They are telling private businesses that they must host content, that they must host speech, that they must say something that they don't want to say. And there is a whole host of arguments and spaghetti against the wall, seeing what's going to stick uh, in an effort to try to advance what is clearly an unconstitutional move. But for me, I'm, I'm a conservative and I'm an originalist, uh, which also helps that I teach at the Antonin Scalia Law School for both those factors. But when I look at this and there are very strong conservative decisions like Citizens United, Hobby Lobby, and Masterpiece Cakes that go forth and say that the government cannot tell a private business what to say. It cannot tell a private business the type of cakes it must create. It cannot tell a private business that it is not in, allowed to engage in other forms of public speech. If we as conservatives are going to hang our hat on those decisions, then when the pendulum swings in the other direction and sometimes those decisions go against us, we need to be willing to accept that. Otherwise, we have to ask ourselves, what are the principles for which we stand? And if it's not to fully recognize the First Amendment and the limitations on the federal government, then we need to begin asking, what do we stand for and where do we stand? So just to be clear, the from your perspective, and I guess from the perspective of this uh, Florida court, the, the, the flaw in the, the Florida legislation, and I presumably the exact same flaw would appear in the Texas legislation, isn't just an issue of federal preemption. It's the First Amendment itself. So with if that's correct, then if Congress tried to pass very similar legislation, it would just be as fatally flawed. Do I have that right? That's correct. In fact, only a couple of paragraphs in the nearly 30-page decision from the Florida court even mentioned Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Almost the entire case is centered around the First Amendment. And, you know, one of the things the judge said was, uh, you know, the First Amendment does not restrict the rights of private entities not performing traditional exclusive public functions. Uh, whatever else may be said of the provider's actions, in this case, you know, think Facebook, think Twitter, think Reddit, uh, they do not violate the First Amendment, it is the state that does it. And when it comes to restrictions of speech, when it comes to issues of the First Amendment, courts are subject to what is called strict scrutiny. And it is often referred to, you know, strict in name, fatal in fact. And that's because strict scrutiny is such a high bar for a piece of legislation to clear that almost always courts find it to be unconstitutional. And that's because, and one of the greatest things about the United States is that we enshrine this protection for Americans into our foundational law. Unlike most of the world, we hold a limitation against the government telling us what to say and what not to say paramount. And where you see other countries can in uh, instill requirements on speech, mandates on the amount of content that has to be created by certain groups. You can't do that here in the U.S. Now, if Congress were to sit down and write the Florida law and strike and remove all the references to Florida and just say U.S., it would die the same way that the Florida law is dying. And hopefully it's not too late for Texas to learn from Florida's mistakes and step back from this First Amendment precipice. So I think there's a lot of people that are dissatisfied with their experience on social media. They don't like what other people are saying. Um, and so I think that both on the left and the right, there's there's an, an interest in uh, a 
updating, modifying, or overturning Section 230. Is there anything that can be done from a legislative standpoint that would be fair game that would uh, actually address any legitimate concerns out there that there should be more or less content moderation? Or is this something where individuals should just make <laughs> make better choices with how they uh, how they experience social media. What's what what options are out there? So so much to unpack there. So let me, let me start at the top. And and Doug, you, you hit the nail on the head when you're describing how social media platforms are kind of stuck in this pincer maneuver from the left and the right, where you see the left saying you need to remove all the content, you need to remove this type of content. Nancy Pelosi complains that there's something that shows her in a negative light must be removed. Then you see from the right moving almost in the diametric opposite direction. You're removing too much content. You need to allow all the speech, uh, regardless of, of how horrible or pornographic or, or et cetera it may be. And so social media platforms are kind of stuck in the middle, getting pulled in both directions, like a, a child with two parents asking them to pick a side. And what's reassuring for me is that social media platforms, for the most part, are kind of recognizing the complaints of politicians, but then doing what I think as, as an originalist and as a conservative should do, which is they look to what is in the best interests of their users and what is in the best interest of their advertisers. And that's how they make their decisions on that. And with Section 230, there are, there are constantly uh, ideas being thrown around on ways to change it, ways to amend it. Uh, the way I often describe it is it's like pulling a thread on a sweater and it will quickly unravel. And instead of one narrow issue that you're trying to address, you will end up unleashing dozens of more problems. And we've already seen this. Uh, there's been one amendment to Section 230. And it was SESTA-FOSTA, and it was designed to address sex trafficking, which we all agree is horrible. And it turns out that, and, and the poster child for the problem of sex trafficking on the internet was this website called Backpage. Turns out no legislation needed to be amended. No legislation needed to be changed. In fact, Section 230 was no barrier for the Department of Justice kicking down the door, shutting down webpage, and arresting its founders. It happened even before SESTA-FOSTA took effect. But what we have seen is a GAO report that just came out on SESTA-FOSTA, which basically says that the law has caused more problems and there's no real evidence that it has solved any. We haven't seen an increase in law enforcement efforts to stop sex trafficking. What we have seen are a number of people who have been forced onto the streets as a result of SESTA-FOSTA. So we just this past week or two had a bill introduced from Senator Feinstein, and her concern is illegal trafficking of guns on the internet, illegal trafficking of guns on the internet. And uh, it's going after a specific website out of the Midwest where it's kind of like an eBay for guns, the best way to describe it. And so Senator Feinstein introduces this bill to address the problem. And in her press statement, she says, this will stop the illegal sale of firearms over the internet. Well, here's the thing. Section 230 today is no protection for violations of federal criminal law. So Section 230 provides no protection for any platform, any website for violations of federal criminal law. Likewise, uh, child pornography uh, and a whole host of other things. Uh, provides no protection for copyright law, for example. So today, if the ATF or the FBI or the Department of Justice has grounds for a legal action against this uh, eBay for guns, Section 230 provides no protection for that website. There's a question of, does the underlying criminal law for trafficking of guns address the problem? And that's a different question, but it's not Section 230 that is the barrier. So what we are seeing and what we commonly hear is Section 230 has become this, this 
boogeyman. It has become this uh, straw man for people who have issues with something that's going on on the internet and then using Section 230 as the scapegoat. And unfortunately, as somebody who also supports, you know, rule of law, when I see efforts to create legislation that will actually not address the underlying problem, it really frustrates me, especially when the underlying problem can be addressed by increased law enforcement, which is basically what is missing in a lot and most of the cases where lawmakers then turn around and say, Section 230 is the problem. Like, no, it's not. It's a law enforcement problem. So there's a lot going on with Section 230, but at the end of the day, it does the most good and the least amount of harm. And if we could get lawmakers, if we could get law enforcement to better understand, better interpret, and better apply the existing law, whether Section 230 or otherwise, then we would be able to address nearly all of the concerns being leveraged against Section 230. The other part of the question that I really had and it's been on my mind is I think that a lot of people overlook just how much control they have over their own user experience on social media. Um, you know, there's and a lot of people maybe just don't know about all the tools, but I mean, there's so much. Uh, you really do have so much control over what is like, for instance, on your Twitter feed based on who you follow. Although, you know, people tweet things into your timeline. <laughs> you have the ability to, to mute people, block people. You actually do have a great deal of control over your own experience. And I think that probably the one that is the most underrated, particularly if somebody holds themselves out as a conservative, is is logging off. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if you if you really want to get dig down into your deep conservative uh, beliefs, uh, you're probably not going to find them on Twitter. You probably actually need to go crack open a book. Uh, and so I think that there's, I, I think that people sort of really overlook just how much control they have. In addition to the content moderation, they really, apart from, you know, maybe they really just feel like they have to be able to read Donald Trump's tweets and they've lost something there they really have control over, over their experience, right? Am I, am I overstating the case? I, I don't think you're overstating the case. In fact, that's one of the quantum leaps that we've seen over the past 20 years with respect to the internet. And it used to be, Doug, as you described, you would go to a web page and it would tell you what it wants to say. But with the creation and generation of user-generated content, you can now go and find the information that you want. You can go find the content that you seek. And it, if it's not there, you can even create it yourself. My wife, over the past uh, year during the COVID lockdown, has done a lot of home, home construction. And how did she learn how to do this? Well, she went to YouTube. And she typed in, you know, how to build your own built-in bookcase. Well, then YouTube then serves up... Uh, other piece of video that they think she might be interested in. And it's about, you know, how to clean up your closet. And the thing is, if she doesn't want to see that video, she just clicks a button and says, don't show me anything like this. Don't show me this. And the, the amount of user customization, the amount of user control is, and Doug, you're, you're exactly right. We just don't appreciate it. You know, everything's amazing and everyone seems to be miserable about it. But by the same token, by the same token, what we're seeing from a lot of the platforms, likewise, is they realize their users and their customers and, and their advertisers don't want to have to see certain types of content. And YouTube gives me as a parent the ability to engage something which is called restricted mode. Restricted mode basically shows only, you know, certain, you know, safe content as opposed to content that is inappropriate for minors. And for me as a parent, that's an incredibly powerful tool because that means that I can allow my children to use the internet in a more safe manner. And this kind of circles back around to the complaints about content moderation where uh, PragerU, which is a very 
large, uh, they have over a billion views now, a uh, conservative YouTube channel. About 12% of their videos are restricted, and it's because they deal with sensitive and controversial topics. And a lot of conservatives have this knee-jerk reaction saying, oh my gosh, there, there you go, that's evidence of anti-conservative bias. And so at NetChoice, we sat down, we dug through some of the data, and it turns out uh, a far left group called Young Turks, about 71% of their videos are restricted. The Daily Show, about 54%. Democracy Now, also far left, 46%. And even the History Channel, about 24% of their videos are in restricted mode. You're like, why would History Channel have videos in restricted mode? Well, let's presume it's something on the Holocaust. Well, as a Jew, that's a conversation I want to have with my children. And I don't necessarily want them surfing the net and seeing images from Auschwitz and likewise. So what you see are platforms doing this incredible balance of giving users tools so I could always disable restricted mode and see all this content. But by the same token, providing us the opportunities to enjoy the internet in a safe and enjoyable way. When it comes to content moderation, it is really hard. It is really tough because it covers speech. And pornography or nudity, nudity is very easy to identify, right? It's, it's is somebody naked, yes or no? It's a Boolean operation. If somebody says uh, something like, join us, that could be a pretty neutral statement. But if it's the Taliban saying it or Al-Qaeda saying it, the words join us have a very different meaning than the phrase than if the US Army were to do it. So when it comes to free speech and content moderation, it's a very difficult balance to be made, but the platforms are doing it. And when it comes to choice and opportunity, the wonderful thing about the internet is the barriers to entry are incredibly small. And this gets into your whole antitrust discussion that I know you want to get to, but uh, a great example is Getter. Getter is the new conservative startup. And its whole premise is that it will be unleashed. It will have no content moderation. Well, it turns out Roger Stone just got banned from Getter. And it's because Roger Stone was bringing content that Getter's owners, Getter's business didn't want on there. So even platforms designed for on the principle of we're going to allow everyone to speak quickly learn then maybe there should be limits on that for what's best for our users or our advertisers. And for those listening who want the unfiltered, unfettered, anything goes internet, we have 4chan and we have 8chan. And there's a reason why those websites are not only relegated to the edge of the internet, most people don't go there because at the end of the day, that's a lot of content that we don't want to see. All right, you sort of teed up antitrust, so let's go ahead and, mm -hmm. and, and go there. Uh, I know it's still early days, but let's talk uh, a little bit about uh, what your perception is of the Biden administration and its approach to antitrust, uh, maybe maybe kicking off with the um, uh, his recent executive order on competition, but also just talk about what, uh, what you see might be happening at the FTC. For the past 35, 40 years, Antitrust law has been governed by what's called the consumer welfare standard. And essentially what it says is, we're not going to worry about helping businesses. We're going to worry about protecting consumers. Hence the phrase consumer welfare. It's created by Robert Bork, uh, you know, famous judge appointed to the Supreme Court back in the 1980s. And what the consumer welfare standard is, is an evolution from what we used to have back in the 1900s. It's an evolution from where Europe is today, which is an attitude of big is bad. Success is toxic. Success is, is, is bad. It's, it's very anti-innovation, very anti uh, growth. It's very anti-consumer attitude. And that's where Europe is today. It's where we used to be about 100 years ago. Uh, and 
it's where, unfortunately, I think the Biden administration wants to set, return the country to. And you're seeing it through the appointments coming from the Biden administration. You are seeing it through the executive order at the Biden administration. And at the heart of it are a handful of appointees who have bought into this whole anti-business rhetoric. In fact, one of the champions of this uh, is the head of antitrust of the White House, named Tim Wu. He literally wrote a book entitled The Curse of Bigness. And the underlying thesis is that success is shameful, that businesses who grow, develop, innovate, regardless of the amount of benefits that they provide consumers, whether prices are precipitously falling, whether choice is rising, uh, big is bad, is their governing principle. And what does this mean for America? Well, I've been going back during the lockdowns and, and rewatching some series on, on History Channel and, and similarly, and you begin to recognize why America is the engine of innovation, why America is the leading nation that it is. And that's because we encourage development. We encourage success. But for those in the Biden administration today, they consider success to be shameful. So let's pick on a couple usual suspects. We'll pick on uh, Facebook, Google, and Amazon. Today, the acting chair of the Federal Trade Commission, her, her rise to fame was centered around a law review paper she wrote a couple years ago on how Amazon is an anti-competitive monopoly. This paper was then championed by Tim Wu, who has basically gone on to write that Facebook, Google, and Amazon are all evil monopolies and uh, destroying America. At one point in Tim Wu's book, he suggests the rise of Hitler was due to the uh, merging of businesses. And, and but for that, we would not have had Hitler. This all sounds very extreme. It sounds very absurd and sounds very un-American, but that's where the Biden administration and that's where the appointees are headed. To, uh, we've already seen several decisions from the Federal Trade Commission on simple things like what are called rulemakings. And one of the things that they have done has actually made it harder for businesses to merge. And what that means is if I have two failing businesses and they decide that they will be ironically better together, the FTC is now making it harder for them to do this, harder for these businesses to survive. But they are doing this because they believe that we should not have successful businesses. We should have multiple mediocre businesses. And they are trying to move us away from a consumer welfare standard, which is centered around the question of, are the actions of these businesses bad for consumers? And instead focusing on corporations over consumers, which almost sounds like an ironic flip for Democrats. So this is the concern that I see coming down from the Federal Trade Commission, coming down from the White House. If we roll the clocks back about six years and we go back to the, or, or sorry, about three years and go back to the Trump administration. If President Trump had created a division of antitrust within his White House, if President Trump had appointed an FTC commissioner who was intended to actually become the chair of the commission, the leader of that commission, if that chair of the FTC, once they took office, immediately issued a gag order on all staff, if that chair of the FTC had immediately engaged in rulemakings that allowed them to engage unanimously, or sorry, uh, individually and unilaterally, on certain enforcement actions, 
Democrats would have gone apoplectic. They would have said that this is the Trump administration trying to seize control of the U.S. economy. This is President Trump trying to foist his will on the businesses of America. But that's exactly what is happening under the Biden administration. The current FTC chair was nominated as a commissioner. Within minutes of her confirmation, it was leaked that she was actually going to be the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. We have seen the creation of a division of antitrust within the White House. This did not exist under the Trump administration. This essentially gives the White House red phone access to control an independent commission in the Federal Trade Commission. And the Federal Trade Commission is essentially the tail wagging the U.S. economy. And so there's a lot of concern that I see, uh, a lot of effort being foisted to essentially tear down American innovation. And it's being led by the Biden administration, but it's being championed by some misguided Republicans as well who don't realize that antitrust efforts against tech is a Trojan horse to seize control of the entire U.S. economy. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned some of the Republicans' uh, new approach to antitrust. Uh, let's touch on that for just a moment, because I know I do want to get to some of the uh, at least end on uh, the some of the state uh, lit- litigation mm-hmm. by the attorneys general. Uh, but t- talk a little bit about um, obviously there's been bills at the federal level. Um, that would be reforming uh, antitrust, both from the, the left and the right. Um, and I know that uh, Ashley Baker's been on our show recently. I believe that we talked about the, um, the, uh, the Klobuchar bill. But talk a little bit about some of the efforts on the right. What, what are they, what are, the, what are Republicans, um, uh, what are they proposing and uh, what do they get right and wrong? I think one of the things that they've gotten wrong is a misunderstanding of which laws to apply. And the one one of the examples would be a uh, lawmaker brought up the the creator of pop sockets. Pop sockets are these things you stick on the back of your phone and they allow you to more easily carry your phone. And the pop sockets guy was upset that somebody else took that idea and produced a cheaper version of it and sold it on Amazon. So the the complaint from the guy from PopSockets is, well, this shows the anti-competitive power of Amazon, that they're able to uh, have a marketplace where competitors to my product are, are competing. And that's not fair. The underlying complaint he has is not an antitrust complaint. His underlying complaint is a patents issue. If if he if his idea is so novel, so new, so grandiose, then he can get a government created monopoly called a patent, and then enforce against people who take his idea and copy it. But those are the types of stories that some Republicans are hearing and thinking. Oh, we need to regulate the market. We need to engage in antitrust enforcement. We need to. Uh, change the laws. So one of the proposals that has been uh, circulated and gets a lot of attention and appeal is what is called a, uh, it's under the auspices of fairness. And the the nut is that you cannot be both the marketplace and the seller simultaneously. And the example they have is Amazon is selling its own batteries called Amazon Basics on the Amazon Marketplace. So the complaint is Amazon should not be both the marketplace and the seller at the same time. I, I'm pretty sure of- that I can go to the grocery store, at, go to Kroger grocery store and buy Kroger beans. Is uh, <laughs> is this is this something that's, unique to the internet? No, that, that's exactly it. And I, you, you stole my thunder, Doug, because uh, that, that's a, the exact rub of it. I go and shop at Costco, right? And I walk in and the Kirkland brand is not only available, but it's at the end. It's what's called the end cap. It's the thing right, at right. the end of the aisle. Uh, so not only is Kirkland, is Costco the 
developer of the brand, they are they are actually promoting their maple syrup ahead of everyone else's maple syrup. And for some reason, when it comes to the internet, that should be illegal. So uh, one of the things that we found is, especially under COVID, there's no real delineation between online and offline, right? So the last time I was in a Costco was probably a couple of years ago, but I'm still buying from Costco.com. Uh, I may pop into a CVS or I may order from CVS.com and CVS has their own generic line. So the difference between online and offline is a distinction without a difference. So what this legislation would ultimately do is it would make it illegal for Costco.com to sell Kirkland brand in an effort to say it's illegal for Amazon Basics to sell on Amazon.com. Not only is this A, absurd, but B, it gets to a more interesting question of who are we trying to protect with this change to antitrust law? Now, the lead proponents of this legislation are people like Energizer and Duracell. So Democrat and Republican lawmakers, a handful of Republicans, most have realized that this is not only bad policy, but it's not conservative. It's not in keeping with conservative values, not in uh, keeping in instead with uh, individualism and free markets. But not only is it bad from that perspective, it's bad for the consumer. So essentially what Democrats are arguing for and what some Republicans have supported is the notion that we should actually have less choice in the marketplace, that we should remove Amazon basics from the marketplace, that we should remove Kirkland from Costco. And what does that mean? That means Duracell and Energizer don't have to compete with as many competitors. And what does less competition bring? It brings higher prices. So it's almost silly that we're now seeing Democrats, uh, Chairman Cicilline of Rhode Island, the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, is is one of the the main drivers of this. Uh, They're actually trying to make it harder for consumers to find lower price items and remove choice from the marketplace. That's just one of the many silly ideas that we are seeing. Another is a, a prohibition on mergers and acquisitions by uh, businesses. As an M&A attorney, I find this particularly hurtful. Oh, and you can, and as an M&A attorney, you have to appreciate a lot of businesses get investments, are able to get started with the expectation of an acquisition, with the expectation of a merger, because they know that once they reach a certain size, a certain scale, they can't afford to grow. They have to have some other influx of funding. And as an M&A attorney, you also recognize, and and for those listening, M&A is mergers and acquisitions, that it's a two-party agreement. What will happen is one business will say to another, we would like to acquire you. That being acquired business has a choice. They can say yes, they can say no. And we've seen this play out time and time again. When Facebook was getting started, and once we have to roll back the clocks, they were approached by Yahoo to be acquired, and and many others wanted to acquire Facebook. And most of the investors wanted Facebook to be acquired. Uh, And Mark Zuckerberg maintained a controlling interest, and he, he said no. So he was in a position to say no and went on to grow his company. There are many other businesses that have been offered to be acquired. And the reason we can't easily name them is because they floundered into nothingness. So this gets back to the notion that success is shameful, big is bad. And you as a business owner, you as a developer, you as an innovator should not have the right to sell your business at a price that you determine to somebody else. And this is one of the bills that has been introduced, that has gained traction, and it is being driven by people who probably don't have an economics background, who've not run a business, who don't understand how the, these operate in the real world. And we're trying to figure out who are they trying to protect. And it turns out they're not actually trying to protect consumers. They're not trying to protect necessarily the small startups who are trying to get seed funding. They just have this conviction and determination that success is shameful, big is bad, 
And like a dog with a bone, they are just going to do all that they can to make that belief a reality. All right. I, I want to move along uh, and sort of finish on uh, state level f- efforts on antitrust. Uh, I know there has been a number of uh, uh, cases brought by states, uh, attorneys general. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what's happening there and what's your, what's your thought in general about uh, should states be the ones leading a charge to, uh, I don't know, break up big tech? You know, uh, it, it's interesting. So antitrust law is actually one of the easiest laws to prove when you have the facts. Uh, in, in law, we have a bunch of different ways to look at how to prove something. And uh, oftentimes it's called mens re, which means what is the individual thinking? And for those who've watched Law and Order, the example of murder, let's use that for example. In murder, did they intend to murder them? That's, you know, did they accidentally murder them? Uh, or was it just uh, something else? And the, and the prosecution has to prove what was the individual thinking when they committed the crime. That's called mens rea. When it comes to antitrust law, there isn't really a mens rea. It's, it's pretty much what's called strict liability. You uh, Either you did it or you didn't do it. And when it comes to antitrust law, the prosecution, all it has to show is A, what's called market power, B, abuse of market power, and C, consumer harm stemming from that abuse of market power. Uh, market power is basically, do you control 75% or more of a defined marketplace? So let's use the example of the lawsuit against uh, Google App Store, which is uh, going through the states right now. And, and this is kind of a mirror image of the Epic suit against Apple. So all the state has to show is that there is market power. Uh, Google controls, uh, on a Google device, Google controls the entire market or 75% of the market for apps, that it has abused that control in some way that has harmed competitors, and such abuse has resulted in a harm to consumers. Well, This is particularly interesting when it comes to an Android device, which is where this lawsuit is being brought by states against Google. Android allows the individual to what's called sideload. So today on my Android phone, I can pick it up and I can install whatever app, whatever app store I want. I could install the Epic store. I can install uh, the Doug McCullough's store if he created one. I could install whatever app I wanted. So the idea that Google controls the marketplace doesn't match reality. You add on the fact that on almost every Android device today, an overwhelming majority come installed with two or three app stores pre-installed. You add on to the fact that the Amazon Kindle, which is built on Android, doesn't even have the Google Play Store installed. It has a different store, the Amazon App Store pre-installed. So you add on all these factors and you see how the state case against Google quickly begins to fold in on itself on the first prong of the three-legged stool, which is, do they have market power? So why would states join up onto this lawsuit? Well, the thing is, once you get somebody leading the charge, there's really no disincentive for another state attorney general to sign on to the lawsuit and only stuff to gain. And you've seen this historically throughout the years on these uh, multi-state lawsuits against certain businesses. The state that is leading the charge is the one with the burden to prove. Every other state who just kind of says me too has the benefit of if that leading state wins. So in the current state against the Google App Store, there's really no cost to every other state signing on to this lawsuit. They only have potential wins. That doesn't mean the underlying lawsuit is any better or stronger or likely to win. What it does mean is just you have more people who are willing to take advantage of any settlement and of any victory that is to be had. 
Uh, it's kind of like uh, it's it's essentially bandwagon attorneys generals is the way to think about that. So that's that's one of the lawsuits that's moving right now in the states. That's kind of funny because uh, as a Texas attorney, we've always heard so much during my career about uh, Texas tort reform and how we're going to make uh, Texas a business friendly place. And what we don't want is these. Uh, uh, these plaintiff attorneys out there suing Texas businesses right and left and driving them out of business, uh, you know, and ultimately driving up prices. And yet that's uh, that's what our attorney general is doing. So it's uh, it's a straight, you know, of course, and that was always on sort of a conservative, liberal, um, you know, uh, spectrum of like the uh, it was it used to always be that the conservatives were the ones in favor of tort reform and, and opposed to frivolous lawsuits against businesses but but here we are well you know since you mentioned tort reform one of the things that we hear is kind of almost circling back to section 230 in part the rest of the world doesn't have section 230 and that's sometimes used as an argument of we should get rid of it or the US stands alone on that but the United States is one of the only nations in the world that doesn't have the what's called loser pays model that you just mentioned with respect to tort reform, where if I sue Doug, no matter who wins, the loser pays. And we don't have that today in in the US. That's why you need something like Section 230, where somebody brings a frivolous lawsuit expecting a quick, and, and basically you as a business have to sit down and do the math. Is it worth my time and money to defend this? Because even if I win, I'm not going to get my attorney's fees back. Or is it better just to settle? And when it comes to to tort reform and the loser pays model, the U.S. stands alone in asking defendants to pay their own fees. And I think if we were to move in that direction, you would see a lot of these antitrust complaints go by the wayside because you wouldn't have the bandwagon state attorneys generals. You'd see a lot of the complaints about Section 230 go by the wayside because a lot of these complaints are being driven by plaintiff's attorneys who know that they don't have a winning case when it gets past you know, the pleading stage and they go up and the court ultimately says, oh, just like a library, we're not going to hold Facebook accountable for the post of somebody else. And they end up losing. It's about people who want quick paydays. And under a loser pays model, a lot of the laws become less necessary. A lot of the lawsuits become less prevalent. And more importantly, a lot of the lawsuits become much less frivolous. And it's good for business. It's good for consumers. It's good for all of us. Not good for lawyers. But, uh, that's a... Uh, not a very sympathetic group. It's 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 good for business attorneys like me. Who cares about the plaintiffs' attorneys? I don't mind if business is bad for them. So on that note of uh, doing what's right for consumers and uh, and businesses, let's uh, let's end there. Carl, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks so much, Doug. Uh, absolute blast.